You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Right in the heart of the inner city, our children wear white shirts every day. They wear ties. Their shoes are polished. We do a checklist every morning because we believe if you can't put an outfit together, it's common sense. You certainly can't keep the world together. Renowned educator Marva Collins. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, America's schools seem to be in crisis. After COVID took its toll, forcing millions of kids to learn remotely, now that many of them are back in the classroom, school boards all across America are facing loud and sometimes very ferocious debate over everything from mask mandates to gender pronouns to critical race theory. But debate over education in America is nothing new. A generation ago, a Chicago educator with some unusual methods was both widely praised and roundly criticized. But you couldn't argue with the success of the students who attended Marva Collins Private Elementary School in an impoverished Chicago neighborhood. I met her more than 30 years ago as we had a conversation about the then state of American education and her unusual methods and their effectiveness. So here now from 1990, Marva Collins. How terrible American education is even today. I thought it was awful 15 years ago. And I think it's certainly with the sense of chagrin and a sense of frustration and sadness that it's even worse now. I, I have to admit I was discouraged. My kids go to Montgomery County Public Schools, uh, which are considered, I, they tell me, one of the finest public school systems in the country. And it, it discouraged me to read, you say, that, that schools all over this country, even the, quote, good schools, are in trouble. Well, I think that's a problem in America. We have developed that good enough attitude. When we talk about being good, as we say to our students, is it locally good? Is it nationally good? But is it also globally good? We tell every student that this happens to be a local school, but your papers must be globally excellent. And children will tell each other when they're about to hand a paper to a teacher, they will say, the teacher is not going to take that paper because it's average. I think American children have settled into the same comfortability that we've taught them, that good enough attitude, or in, a, in the average American school. If, I think what parents do not realize when we talk about good schools, if a child comes home, what parents often tell me, my child comes home with all A's. I talk to very wealthy people or presidents of corporations, that kind of thing. Had a conversation with someone who is a very high-profiled CEO on the plane yesterday from Boston. He started to tell me his children are making all A's, and I says, have you looked at your children's textbooks? The average textbook in our American schools is written two or three grade levels below where they should be. So, of course, if you were in my school and you made A's using a fourth-grade textbook, you should do well. Again, I, I think when it's very, very difficult, our three- and four-year-olds do things like Swatonias, Boadicea, Mary, Queen of Scots, Father Hidalgo. They can spell every word in Dr. King's I Have a Dream. They can give you synonyms, homonyms, antonyms. They can tell you what the words mean. They're able to use those words or 
just for example, a five-year-old, I told him he was very bright before I left the other day, and he says, Mrs. Collins, not only am I bright, I am momentous, I am august, I am foremost, I am tremendous, and I have cognoscenti. <laughs> and I think, again, that's, that's de rigueur there. I mean, every child is, is verbal, and, and it's a total child. When we talk about a good school system, Academics is not enough. We have to have national pride. We have to have morals. Uh, any civilization without morals, we only have to look at Gibbon's rise and fall of the Roman Empire. We have to talk about the total child. Or a five-year-old said once to a new six-year-old who had just come to the school, and he was arguing about a pencil. And he said, here, take this pencil. I'm trying to figure out how to own the whole pencil company. And I, and I think it's that you are responsible behavior. It's a total individual. And, and even though those aphorisms might sound very trite, it is endemic to the total individual when a child tries to give another child an answer and one student will say, don't forget, I love you very much, but every child must sit on its own bottom. I think those kinds of things, little truisms are with the three- and four-year-olds. The first story they learn to read is if you don't, the little red hand, if you don't work, you don't eat. One astute six-year-old asked me one day, well, Mrs. Collins, what happens if the government comes in and makes you share with the people who don't work? (laughs) And I think it's that kind of diatribe, this Socratic back and forth. When we talk about good schools, I think parents have forgotten how to measure. Is there a lot of teacher-pupil dialogue? Is there a tracking system of learning disabilities? Are all children put together? How do we treat our at-risk students? What is that child's not just getting good grades, but is that child getting a real practice for the real world? Where is the line, though, between pushing a a child to the best he can be, challenging him, making his mind work, and crossing over that line into pushing him too hard, making him do too much too fast, well, making a high schooler out of a third grade. Well, I think when you talk about pushing too fast, I think if it's done under duress, I think children are the best barometers. They certainly have always been very astute at not doing what they don't want to do. Our three- and four-year-olds will come in the door in the mornings and leave their parents at the door and run down the hallway. We have no recess, no jam, no juice and cookie snacks, and yet the worst discipline problem we have is getting our children to go home in the afternoons. We have to lock the back door. <laughs> we put them out the front door, and they will actually sneak back in the back door in, in the afternoons. They tell us, I don't want to go home. Or I call, as I always do when I'm away from the school, to see how the day went yesterday. And my son said to me, he's taken the little three- and four-year-old group that I teach when I'm there, and I've taught him how to do it. And he says, Mom, you know, they actually did not want to leave the class at lunchtime. They said, can we spend our lunch period reading? But I think people have to feel that they're great. We praise them. It's not done under duress. If a child makes a mistake, we'll say good try, but not quite. We never say that's an error. We'll say let's proofread this. I think proofread sounds better than you made a mistake. We never have them write on their papers do over. We are there as a writer composition. They're only allowed to write one paragraph before we are there to check it. No teacher has a teacher's desk. We don't ridicule children by having them write, I will not chew gum. 
they have to do the etymology of gum, where the first gum came from, and that's graded. If they insist on negative behavior, they have to stand up and give an impromptu three-minute speech or why I am too bright to exhibit whatever behavior it was. It's a positive reinforcement when they act up in the classroom. We beat the desk, and children will say, oh, they are getting quite quixotic right now. But we beat the desk, and they know that we are upset. No child is ever punished or touched or hit because I believe in the real world, you do what you have to do without being beaten or forced to do it. After this short break, Marva Collins on why what kids wear to school is so vital to their academic success. Now back to my 1990 conversation with Marva Collins. What is it about our society that when someone has a great deal of success with something that they've come up with, that we feel we must, and, and we in the media in particular feel, we must find what's wrong. What, what has happened? What, what is really the evil I think behind the, this I think thing? the cynicism, uh, it, it's just amazing that people don't believe in doing good, that you have to have an angle. I take no government grants, and I've said that over and over and over again, and as always, someone who's going to discern that we do, which is okay, um, Again, I think people don't see doing good for good's sake. Uh, there has to be an angle. Mm-hmm. People can't understand that I care. But the children do more for me than I ever do for them. Because I forget who I am. I forget my problems. It's a catharsis for me. It, it really, I'm energized. And I feel that I'm so lucky that I love what I do. I can't wait for Sundays to pass so I can get there on Mondays. And and that excitement, and every teacher has that, and that excitement rubs off on the children. Children are free to come and say to us, right now, I don't feel like doing my math. I need a hug right now. But that also dispels behavioral problems because they know they're free to do that at any time they'd like. Right in the heart of the inner city, our children wear white shirts every day. They wear ties. Their shoes are polished. We do a checklist every morning because we believe if you can't put an outfit together, it's common sense. You certainly can't keep the world together. I mean, don't tell me you want to work for my corporation when I'm going to look and you can't tie your shoelaces. So if you can't tie your shoelaces, I certainly am not going to have you tripping around my corporation. I think it's the little things that we don't expect from children, and children are uncanny individuals. They love those people who would lovingly make them be all that they can be. I am what I am because some mentors, some parents, I was fortunate to have parents who taught me the work ethic to do things well, or I did them over and over again. My dad would repeatedly tell me I was too bright to think that I could get by with half-doing, or... And I think if some child, all of us who have achieved any modicum of success, if we are truthful, it was some parent, it was some teacher, it was someone who insisted that we be all that we can be. And that's what we lovingly do, but we never have an absence at our school. Kids come to school sick. (laughs) They want to be there, but we praise them. I love you, but I love you, but here you're going to learn and you're going to die. Now take your choice. How do you engender enthusiasm in children for reading or or math or history, geography, whatever it happens to be? I think they have to have some modicum of success in order to to want to succeed. If they never have that 
I had a student uh, when I taught high school. He was in 10th grade, and he had failed it. The script that had been given him is you're no good, so you have to be a clown. And I sat to him one day, I'm going to help you individually because it must be tough going home every night trying to figure out a brand-new act to keep this class in chaos. And we did that on an individual basis. I actually would help him with his math. We would cheat, and I would announce to the class, Johnny just made an A, and the kids looked at me and said, you've got to be crazy, Mrs. Collins. Johnny has never done anything right. His mother called me at home and said, I know you helped him because he's never done anything right. And I had to get everybody to understand that's why he's repeating the validation. You've got to give the negative kid a different script because he keeps hearing Fifteen people tells him he's no good. He begins to practice being no good. What about what? How can you send kids back home at the end of the day to a home that, whose entire library <clears throat> may consist of five issues of TV Guide? The, the home that has never seen a map, that has never seen uh, that's uh, even know, a more, musical instrument. But uh, that's even more reason. Oh, we we have children, three and four year olds, reading Suetonius Boeticier, and who will go home and say, "My mother called this word Suetonius," and I said to mommy, "It's Suetonius." They teach their parents, but I think again, I'm not very comfortable with we as Americans using excuses because those excuses certainly are not going to keep us preeminent. If we look at any successful nation, people, it's not people who make excuses. I don't want to hear can't. Every child tells you, you remove the T from can and you have I can. Abraham Lincoln didn't learn to read, so history says, until he was 14 years old. Today, he would have been put in a learning disability center, never had the opportunity to become president of the United States. I can think on and on. Einstein sat in the classroom thinking of how many degrees of shadows that came in the windows, and the teachers automatically thought that he was a learning disability. I think, again, if we're going to make excuses about the fetid homes, the good school is willing to bridge a gap with which a child comes. Oh, that child's going to fall between the cracks. It doesn't take... A genius to understand that, but we have parents, we have classes for our parents. They learn the same things that their children learn. But even in the public schools, I, I think again, when I had to buy cereals for the children, clothing, you do what you have to do to change this generation, or it becomes a self perpetuating one. We have to remember the first immigrants that came to this country, and I think we comfortably forget all of our legacy and freedoms depended on that good school system for that first generation. Had that first generation fallen through the cracks, America could have been a very different society. And I guess I am so tired of hearing American Malays. Um, Talk to someone from Japan. Talk to someone from another culture. You don't hear the excuses that we have developed here. I mean, that's all I hear it's why something is bad or why it doesn't work. And, and, and that certainly America has many, many problems, but if we visit other countries, it is still the greatest country on earth. Marva Collins died in 2015. She was 78. And you can find easy Amazon links to Marva Collins' book at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, you'll find my interview with another person who's teaching methods about children were both widely praised and roundly criticized. 
my interview with Dr. Benjamin Spock. It wasn't until I was in my 60s that I realized that the major problems and the major needs of children are ones that uh, will have to be satisfied through political action. Oh, and also be sure and listen to my interview with another man who influenced millions of young lives back in the day, Captain Kangaroo, Bob Keeshan. I really have more fun talking to the adults, yesterday's children, now grown up, and they're able to say things to me that are very meaningful, like, you know, you were always a good friend, you started the day out right for me, you made me feel good about myself. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my conversation with an entrepreneur who turned her social conscience into a very successful business. My 2000 interview with Body Shop founder Anita Roddick. I mean, we've got ads, but they're bizarre. So instead of something boring like Body Shop Skin and Hair Care, we've got one that reads, if you think you're too small to be effective, you've never been to bed with a mosquito. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.